Thanks, Lynn. Uh, it's, great to, um, it's great to be together and see the kind of richness of God's people, the church at work, isn't it? You, um, you come, you have people lead us in song, we have people lead us in prayer, we have uh, seen babies, new life, uh, we celebrate that, we celebrate the new life spiritually, uh, Jerry and his conversion and uh, Katie, it's just wonderful to see. And we have people who have the gift of being able to make up songs. Do you know that? So that's, that song's written by um, Trev, Cass and... Oh, mainly Ben Lattimore. Is, is he somewhere? Ben Latz. Good on you, brother. Um, I'm going to write a song with Ben Broadfoot and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> they laughed, though. Did you notice that? Yeah. It's a great gift and a real blessing. Thank you. Um, well, let me pray and we'll dig into the Word together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your many blessings uh, among us as your people, the way you gift and um, help and give to us in so many different ways. We think you'd be able to come together and uh, uh, joyfully respond to you, but joyfully encourage each other. We pray now for our time in the Word, please, that it might be a great help to us, that you might use these words to stir us to love and good deeds, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you up front where we're going, because in a moment I'll give you a little bit of background. We're, uh, we're going to be going through a new series, of course, but to give you some sense of where it's all going, just this particular morning. What I want to do is take you in to help to live the Christian life. It is a look at lessons from Jesus in his earthly life on how to live the Christian life, how to stand, how to push on and press on. A bit of background though, this is coming from the last night of Jesus's life, we're into John, we're stepping back into John's Gospel, but we're stepping back in uh, in John 15. Now you need to know the context. John 15 is really, uh, from here on in, is the last night of Jesus' life. And in fact, um, the last bunch of chapters have been all about the last night of Jesus' life. So you see there in John 13, flip back there a little bit, that'll give you some context. It was just before Passover festival. So the Passover festival's Easter. That's when he's going to be crucified. You see, it's just before then. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he comes now with his disciples to, verse 2, an upper room, and uh, he gathers there with his disciples, the ones that he's loved, and he instructs them. And what you have extraordinarily is chapter after chapter of a book that's covering the whole life of Jesus, but most of it's orientated towards this last uh, week, last night, last days of Jesus' life, because that's where it all happens. And so we'll be focused on that particular teaching of Jesus through this period. And, and it, this is some of the most important teaching Jesus does, as he's about to finish, as he's about to go to the cross... He instructs his disciples in those things that are critical for them. And just a quick run-through of all that he gives. If you do come back to John chapter 13, what's the first thing he begins to teach them? He teaches them to love one another, the washing one another's feet. He, he teaches them about the need to be ready for his betrayal, verse 18. He tells them that very truly someone will betray him. He then talks to them in chapter 14. There's a number of things that happen here. Chapter 14 about the coming of the Holy Spirit a topic that we'll look at more next week. He talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is extraordinarily unique because if you look in chapter 14, verse 18, 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not another being, it is God, it's the Spirit of Christ, it's Jesus coming to his people. And so an astonishing insight into the work of God himself in Trinity. You've got that teaching comes. And then in chapter 15, 
He gives some teaching about remaining in him. He is the vine and we're the branches to remain in him. And now today, this morning, verse 18 of chapter 15, he talks about what their experience will be of living the Christian life. What it will be like to be a follower of Jesus in this world. And if I could summarise, what will that experience be like? It'll be hard. It'll be tough. And yet there's help and the most powerful help. It's tough. Now, this morning's not going to be very positive. Um, It's important to be positive. I think we we need to pay attention to the positives and lots of them, but not always. It matters just as much to see the challenges and the hard things. Let me illustrate why. Back in the day uh, when we had our first, just before we had our first child, so we're now talking um, BC, ancient history, but uh, um, before our first child, uh, Cathy and I went off to a a uh, pre-birthing class just to find out what was all this thing that we were about to go through. And the person running, the lady running it, my memory is, Cathy's now sitting there, I can correct it, which, but the, my memory is that she showed us a video of another couple who had been through this experience of being ready for birth and then giving birth. And it was a, a, a young couple who had, she had her support friend with her, another woman, so there was the three of them. And they were talking about what they were expecting and hoping for in the birth. And it was beautiful. It was um, this wonderful hope of... Uh, a spiritual experience, effectively, where there'd be candles and incense and lots of music and it'd be gentle, it'd be warm water that uh, would bring the baby in in this wonderfully calm way. The baby was going to come into the world in peace and happiness and love and there was going to be laughter and tears of joy. And then she showed us after the birth and there were tears, but they weren't joy. There was lots of tears. It was a 20-hour labour. And there was screaming, there was hair pulling, there was sweat, there was anger. There was a friend, her her support friend was at one occasion trying to tickle the back of this woman going through labour to calm her and help her. Well, a woman turned on her and tore her head off in anger. And it was a spiritual experience because that woman then raised to meet her God. um, (laughs) But there was no, the music was off. There was no warm bath, she wasn't getting in the bath, the whole thing was a nightmare. Now the instructor showed us the video for what reason? What are you doing going through birth? Don't do it. No, 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 no. She did it so that we wouldn't be thrown, so that forewarned is forearmed. If you can see what it could be and how hard it can be and face the realities of what it's going to be like, you're better positioned to deal with it. Yes, mums? Yes, said with feeling. It, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I just wandered around lost most of the time. But, you know, you've got that, um, that help. It's actually a help to see how hard it could be. And also, in the midst of that, seeing how hard it's going to be, you're actually better placed to find the joys. Because you're not thrown and shocked and distressed and disturbed. You're able to get through it and see the goodness in the midst of it all. So it's a great help. She did a great help to us. The Christian life. What do you expect the Christian life will be like? A beautiful spiritual experience with candles and incense and warm baths and tickles on the back. Or 20 hours of labour, screaming, hair pulling. Which do you expect it to be? Well, Jesus is with his disciples, those disciples that he has loved as his own, who are in the world, And he loves them to the end, and he loves them to the end by telling them the hard stuff. By bringing them what it will be like to follow him. 
And he says all of this in the context of, let me show you now the passage, he says it in the context of saying, you've got to remember this. Have a look at chapter 5, let's see if we can pick it up, verse 20. Remember what I told you. Remember. You need to remember this. Come to 16 verse 1. All of this I have told you so you will not fall away. I am pre-warning you that you might be pre-armed, that you won't fall away. 16 verse 4, I have told you this so that when the time comes you will remember that I warned you. Jesus is emphatically speaking about what this experience of being a Christian will be like so that they will be prepared for it. And what will it be like? Well, he says again and again and again that you will be hated. You'll be hated. Look at verse 18. The world hates you. Verse 19. The world hates you. Verse 20. They will persecute you. Chapter 16, verse 2. The time is coming, in fact, when those who kill you will think they're offering a service to God. And they did kill the disciples. All but one of them was uh, killed because of their testimony to Christ. Only one of them, the author of this book, lived to old age and he, he saw at the end of his days in a prison cell, in solitary confinement because of his testimony to Christ. They were hated just as Jesus said. But it wasn't just them that he was talking about. Some of this is directed uniquely to them and their circumstances. We need to try and tease that out. Um, but there is a connection to us. The connections are twofold. One of them is there in verse 20. It's a principle that Jesus offers that means it does connect to us. Remember what I told you, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. See, there's the principle. The reason why they'll hate you is because a servant is not greater than their master. If they hate the master, then they'll hate the ones who follow the master. And so he's speaking directly to the apostles, the disciples, of course, the first generation disciples of Jesus. But therefore, that principle applies to anyone who becomes a follower of this master. If the master that you follow is the crucified, hated one, then the servant's not greater, you'll experience the same things. There's the application to us, this is teaching to us. But there's another reason why it connects to us, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not often how we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's profoundly important to get hold of. If you notice the structure of this text, uh, this, this teaching of Jesus, in John 15, verse 18 to verse 25, he talks all about the persecution that's to come, the hatred, hostility and so on. He comes back to it in chapter 16, verse 1, uh, when he talks about them uh, being killed. Between those two sections sits chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, the coming of the Spirit, the coming of the Advocate. Now, how do those? why does Jesus um, teach about hostility, hatred, hostility, hatred, and between them sit the coming of the Spirit? Because the work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will come to testify about Jesus. He will carry on the ministry of Jesus. What Jesus did, the Holy Spirit will make sure keeps happening in the world. And the Holy Spirit will keep making sure that happens in the people that have been called to Christ. Which therefore means that as they hated Jesus, they'll hate all those who have the spirit of Jesus, who continues the mercy of Jesus. You see the continuity that rose down, down through the centuries to us. Now, there is the context. Hatred, hostility. It begs a massively important question, which is this. 
Why? Why will followers of Jesus be hated like this? Now, in some ways, the answer to that question is more important than the fact of the hatred, actually. I, you, you know, the, helping us to see spiritually what's going on is probably more important than just noticing that we'll be hated, persecuted. Why? Well, Jesus takes us through this, and he has, uh, I'm going to say, three layers to his answer. There's an initial layer that you can just pick up more broadly. There's a second layer that we'll see in the text, and a third layer that takes us to the deep things. Let me give the first layer. Why, why will people be hated who have the ministry of Jesus? Why was Jesus hated? And just remember that he was. Jesus was crucified by a world that was hostile to him. Why? Well, because his message was confronting. He didn't, if you boil the message of Jesus down, you don't boil it down to love. He didn't just come teaching to love one another. Yes, he taught about love. But he came with a message of lordship. He said to people, repent and bow the knee to me, your Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved except my name. There is no other hope except me. Now how is that going to go with people who do not want to bow the knee to their God? There was a book written many years ago with the title, uh, Why is the Gospel of Love Dividing America? It noticed the cultural context in America, a great deal of division between Christians and the, and the community around and so on. It was asking, why, why should that be so? It's a gospel of love. We should be loving one another. Um, and uh, what it was offering is the thought that the Christian message is just about loving one another and that should make people love each other more. In response, another book was written called Why the Gospel of the Lordship of Jesus must divide when you understand what Jesus is what he comes to bring it's a confronting message a challenging message and he also came with a message of humility now I don't just mean be humble uh, but actually humble yourselves before God now I you may not remember last a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the uh, parallel of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, but let me remind you, it was a story to show us who are the ones who actually are right with God. It's not the people who are good; it's the people who are bad, and confess their badness and bow their knee before God, broken before Him, crying out, "Woe is me, a sinner! Have mercy on me!" Do you remember? You would think at one level that's a beautiful message that's incredibly encouraging and nurturing and helping because it means anyone who recognises they're not good enough goes, yes, Lord, awesome. But I'll tell you what's massively confronting as well. To tell the world that you're not good enough to a world that's in its pride thinks it is, is incredibly confronting. To tell a world that thinks it's in control that I can work out what I do with God, that no, you need to come before him and be humbled and broken before him and say, you have mercy on me. I'm now in your hands. That is incredibly confronting. And when people understand what Jesus is teaching, they're outraged. You mean all these years of religious practice and goodness that I've amassed counts for nothing? Yes, says Jesus. It's worse than nothing. Confronted, offended, outraged. Jesus comes saying, 
You cannot be your best self and make it. The future's not in your hands. Inherent is his message is repent, bow the knee and give over the lordship of your life to God. You see, there's, there's much about Jesus that caused affront and offence and reaction and so division and hostility. There's the first layer. He comes teaching not just love but lordship, not just he teaches grace and humility. But there's a second layer. He comes bringing all of this into a world that's united in its opposition to God. Now, let's come to the text more closely. Look at verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. There's Jesus' reason. Why does the world hate you? Because I've chosen you out of the world. There is something profound going on here, as there is with all that follows. Um, this, This reason for the hostility of the world to Jesus and his followers is because of a theological, spiritual thing. The world. When Jesus and John talk about the idea of the world, uh, it's a spiritual observation about the character of the community of the world. It's not just saying the planet. When he talks about the world, he's talking about a community of humanity opposed to God. It's referring to a crowd of individuals who are all living their lives, pursuing their ambitions and doing what they want to do. But ultimately, when you step back from it all, are united in their opposition to God and his rule over us. And Jesus comes into the world and shines the light of truth on it, on that community. And John 3, go back this afternoon and read John 3, when the light comes into the world, men love darkness and do not want to come into the light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be exposed by the light that Jesus brings about their hostility and their reaction and their, and their pushing back. You see, the thing is, you can see the world as a mass of individuals doing their own thing, getting on and making their way in life, but Jesus steps up over it and back from it and sees beneath it, if you like, a united sense of what the world is like and it is opposed to God. Friends, whilst ever you drift with the world, doing what you want to do, living the way you live, getting the house, getting the car, getting the family and kids all sorted and getting the holidays in place, whilst ever you live in the world, there's a sense in which you're drifting along down the river of the crowd of the world, going its direction, all playing its own game in the river that's going along. But when you come to Jesus... A profound change happens. You are chosen out of the world by Jesus and made his. You are taken out of the world and now belong to another kingdom. The kingdom of the son he loves. And therefore you break with the world and its patterns. And so there's a sense in which you're, you're chosen out of the world but chosen now to stop, to, 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 live a different, to stand still in the river of the world. And so suddenly, you now notice that it's not a friend. The world that I happily drifted down the stream with, I'm suddenly stopped in the stream and it's now buffeting me. 
because I realise I'm living life to a different tune, to the beat of a different drum. I have different values and priorities now. I'm not just about materialism and getting ahead in the world and just family olatry and work. I'm, I'm not just about finding the best leisure I can. I actually have a whole new mindset, which is to serve the Lord Jesus and live for him and break the power of pride in my life. It will set you in opposition to the world around you. Many of you have come to faith in recent weeks and months. And I dare say you will notice it the most. I remember the first years of my Christian life, um, come from a non-Christian home, a non-church home, the experience of those first years where I suddenly, <laughs> I suddenly had to live a different life following Jesus, it was a constant banging in the world as it tried to go its way and I had to try and stand. It was an incredible... And you might be feeling all of that as well. If you are, it's normal. Because you've been chosen out of the world. You see, there's the second layer, a thing called the world, which you now no longer belong to. But there's a third layer and the deepest layer. And it's there, let's see if we can pick it up in verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. They'll treat you this way because of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. It's because they don't know God the Father. They will treat the Son like this. He expands on this in verse 23. Whoever hates me, hates my Father as well. Chapter 16. They'll put you out of the synagogues. They'll think by killing you, they're offering a service to God. Verse 3, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying it to a religious group of people who, for all intents and purposes, by looking at them, you would say they love the Father, they love God. But he says the deepest reason they have for hating him is because they've never loved God. It's not just that his coming created a hostility towards God. He says his coming revealed a hostility that was always there. That's how you make sense of verse 22, actually. If I'd not come, they wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. It's not suggesting they didn't have sin before. What's The second half is how you read the first half. It's now they have no excuse. What was there all along becomes evident, and now they have no excuse for what has been there all along. This is so deep that it needs fuller explanation. You look at the people that he's speaking to, the people who, for all appearances, were loving God, being for God, but Jesus says, no. His coming brought to the surface the fact that they were hiding from the true God by their religious observances. This is an incredible thing that Jesus says. They didn't love God, not the true and living God. They loved their own construct of God. They worshipped God but it was a God of their own making. Now, how do you know this is true? Well, because when the true God came into the world, the light that gave light to all men, the one who is the Logos, the Word, who was God with God, when the true God 
becomes flesh and dwells amongst us, what do they do with him? They kill him. When the true God comes, it shows they never actually liked the God who really is there. They liked their own version of God and didn't like the one who actually was. Have you ever, have you ever got to know someone from a distance? One of the things that happens when you do that is, you know, you might do online stuff or letters, perhaps, whatever, but you, you get to know them on, from a distance. And uh, it's, possible, it's possible to project your own ideas of what they're truly like onto them. You, know, you pick up cues and you want them to be a certain way, so you start to project what they, you think they really are like. And then you find when they actually arrive, they're quite a shock. That's not who I thought you were. You do this, we do this with movie stars all the time. We watch them on TV playing actors and certain characters and we project onto them what they must be like in real life. And when you meet them, they're not at all like that. It's the thing we do... We do this with God all the time. We reject onto Him what we want a God to be like. And we typically create a God we'd like to worship. And we then fall in love with our own image. But then the real God comes and we crucify Him. In their hostility towards Jesus, what is revealed is their hostility that they'd always had towards the true God. Now, this is not just the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Other Bible writers make the point with regard to all of humanity. Romans chapter 1, it's deeply disturbing that what looks like the love of God is in fact so shaping God in our image that we keep God at bay while still living with the pretense that we actually love God when we don't. Um, And you see what's going on here. Jesus is saying that's what the world is like and it's terrifying. Now, I want to apply this to us because this is not quite the point, but it's an important point to make to us. We want to be careful about not just critiquing the world out there. Um, uh, There's a sense in which... The, the tendency there is our tendency as well, and we need to speak to ourselves in this. Uh, work hard to know the true and living God, not your caricature, creation that you've made up. Be aware that we're all prone to this, to make God in our image. If, if you are a person by disposition, by character personality, who likes soft things, gentle things, um, sentimental things, if that's your nature you will tend to create a God who's very much like that. But if you're a person who likes being right all the time and uh, judging and critiquing and you've got edges, you'll end up with a God like that, who is only always critiquing and condemning. If you're someone who's opposed to leadership and power in relationships, you'll end up with a God who is just gentle and meek and mild. If if you're someone who is all for power and dominion over others, your God will end up being this oppressive ruler. Do do, do you see, we bring our stuff to how we conceive of this God we can't see. We need to pay careful attention, especially at those points where the Bible doesn't fit the way we would have written it. You need to read the Bible carefully so that you notice how it says things that I wouldn't have said. Because it's that point where you start to learn what your own conception is and how wrong it is. That's why, as a church, we commit ourselves to weekly study. So we we want everyone in a growth group. 
And one of the main things, there's other things we want, growth group, prayer, time together and so on, uh, getting to know one another. But we want you to be in the Bible week by week. And we want you to be in the Bible, not just there to share your thoughts. And it's beautiful to hear your thoughts. But one of the blessed things that can happen in a group is that someone in the group, when you share your thoughts, says, where does that say that in the Bible? And you go, well, I don't know. It's, I, God just gave it to me. Someone should say, show us in the Bible. And, well, I don't know, it's somewhere here. No, where? (laughs) Learn to read the Bible and see what it's actually saying so that you get shaped to know God as he truly is and don't live with your character true of him. If you find yourself saying this sentence, that's not the kind of God I'd like to believe in, stop yourself. Well, that's not the kind of God I'd like to believe in. Someone needs to press in and say, whether it is the God you'd like to believe in is not the issue, it's what is he actually like that's the issue. If you're a Christian who is doing Christian life mainly on your own, you are in the deepest trouble. Now, it might be you're here today and you don't come often. If you're here today, praise God you're here. This may well be God's timing that he's speaking particularly to you today. If it's not your pattern and practice to be here every week, you are most at risk. Now, we're all at risk, but you are most at risk because you're more regularly with your own thoughts, with no one to press in against and bump up against and say, whoa, hang on. Why do they hate Jesus? Because he's not of this world, the world that's opposed to God. His message is confronting It's not just love, it's lordship. Be humbled, broken before God. But more deeply, he's hated because in the human heart, deep down, is a hostility to the true God that Jesus brings to the surface. And if you look there at verse 25, it's not rational. They hated me without reason. Quoting from Psalm 69, which Jesus fulfills of the Davidic psalm. The picture he paints is a spiritual assessment of the world of which we're all a part. A world that Jesus came into to call the people out from, all those that might bow the knee to him, be transferred from one kingdom to another, so that you can now live differently. See, here it is, friends. If you follow Jesus, if you have been chosen out from the world to now be in the kingdom of the Son... If you follow Jesus, the true Jesus, and you're actually living for him, seeking to be like him by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will experience hostility. Now, it may not always be overt, though some countries of the world, people are being dragged out of churches and killed. It may not be overt, but you will notice issues and challenges and people confronting you and awkwardness Because the servant is not greater than the master. If they hate it, the master, they will hate the servant. And it won't be rational. It'll come from a deep place. Now, take great care here. You might be experiencing hostility because you're just annoying. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Might have nothing to do with Jesus. It's easy to get people to hate you by being tactless, abrasive, arrogant, obnoxious, as many of you are, (laughs) saved by grace. 
You know, the challenge is that when you do get hostile reactions and people come against you, it'll be a mix of things usually. It'll be something to do with you being a Christian often, but it'll be because of other things and the way you've spoken, your tactlessness and what have you. Um, and and you, you'll, you'll find yourself going, oh, people hate me because I'm a Christian. It's irrational. No, it's largely just because you're a pain. Now, how do you work out which is which? How do you work out which is which? Come and talk to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. No, no, no. Um, uh, uh, what I mean is, uh, talk to someone who knows you. Talk to someone who knows you. Talk to someone who won't just be agreeable and say, oh, of course they're terrible. But someone who will actually say, you know what, you've got some stuff to work on. Uh, talk to someone so you might grow to become more like Christ so that any reactions are more and more. The point of this is you could be the most loving considerate, kindest follower of Jesus and yet still be hated. This applies to churches as well, actually. We hear a lot of people say things about churches that if churches were just more like Jesus, more loving, accepting, less judgmental, you know, drawing lines and all the wrong... If we didn't draw the lines there but drew them here, then the world would love us and respect us and we'd have a great crowd rushing towards us. Now, there's some truth in that. We could be more like Jesus as a church, yes. But no... You could be everything that Jesus is and the church would still be hated. Because the most person, perfect person who ever lived, Jesus, was hated. You know, at work, if you're known as a Christian, and you ought to be, if no one at work knows you're a follower of Jesus, you need to fix that. Not in a weird way, but in an appropriately mature way. But you're at, church, at work and people know you as a Christian and following Jesus shapes the way you live, you will find that you're out of step and there's some hostility that comes. Now, some reasons will be obvious. Sometimes it'll be because the company keeps doing cash business to avoid paying tax. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do that job for you. If you pay cash, it'll be lower. Um, and you as a Christian become convicted that you've got to pay appropriate taxes and so you no longer do that practice and you will step out from, you'll stop in the river and act differently which will cause the river to bump up against you, the people around you to be hostile because the fact that you're not doing it judges them. You're a Christian. If there's a wear at purple day at work or at school and you find yourself convinced that affirming and celebrating certain cultures is inappropriate you will find hostility against you because of that. It'll be mixed up with all kinds of things, but at the root of it will be a hostility towards God who calls on us to think a certain way about men and women in our lives together. You think back to 2022. Do you remember the Manly Seven? Seven young rugby league players who refused to wear the pride jersey during one of the rounds of the league game and uh, the media took them to task. Do you remember that? But did you know that earlier that year, a young Muslim woman refused to wear the jersey in the AFLW, the pride jersey, and the media had a very different reaction. Now, there was lots of hostility too, but there's a very different reaction. And you find yourself going, whoa, that makes no sense, that's not fair. Exactly. They hated Jesus without reason. Of course it's not going to be fair. That's the world we're in. You see, in all of this, Jesus is touching on deep things, a way of seeing what's happening in our world, a spiritual reality that means you cannot be friends with the world. 
Now, this is a comfort, a help and a challenge. It's a comfort. If you are finding opposition in your context, it might be you become a Christian and your family is now hostile towards you. It might be that in your friend's circle, you're now swimming against the tide and find, if you're finding all of that happening, it's normal. Nothing strange is happening. Work at being gracious and loving, getting rid of the edges that are annoying, but it's normal. And it's a help. It's a help to keep going, says Jesus. I've told you this so that you will not fall away. But it's also a challenge. The challenge is this. When you come to Jesus, something deeply profound happens at a spiritual level. You are transformed out of the world into the kingdom of Christ. You ought to be out of step with the world around you. And here's the challenge for us. Are you? Have you just taken on the Jesus of your own image who loves your materialism? Who loves you living for the world as you always have? Have you not heard him call you out from that to be different? You ought to be out of step with the world that is opposed to the things of God. We ought to be living differently. We ought to have different values, care about different things. So the challenge here is to be in step with Jesus even when it hurts. Don't expect that your values will align. Don't expect that you should be speaking things that the world applauds you for. That's exactly not the point. How often don't we stand up to say we're followers of Jesus or express an opinion that's Jesus' opinion? How often don't we because we know it'll bring hostility? It's a challenge. The Christian faith is not a private faith. It's meant to be public. So I want to urge you to get ready. I've got just a couple more things to say, but to get ready at work when lunch happens and people start shooting at Christians. What do you do? You know it will be relational suicide to say you're one of them, but whose favour matters to you most? The Lord Jesus who died for you or a group of friends who might be lovely and wonderful? How do you pull all of this off? Well, more next week, but uh, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're given the Spirit who comes as a helper. Uh, the Spirit comes to enable us to stand in the midst of hostility, chapter 14. We're not on our own. We have this Spirit of Jesus who points us to Jesus. See, think with me. How does the Holy Spirit help me stand? Well, he does it a few ways. He does it by giving me a power that's beyond human comprehension. I'm empowered by the work of the Spirit that I just don't know how it happens. But there is a sense in which the power of the Spirit works this way. The power of the Spirit comes into my life to point me to Jesus, to testify to me about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit points me to Jesus. And he points me to the Jesus who suffered hatred for you, who went to the cross for you, who gave himself to endure hostility and shame and death for you, who suffered in your place, stood up to take all of that in your place so that you might be saved. And as the Spirit points me to that Jesus, the Spirit says to me, how much is too much to now suffer when your Lord suffered for you? How much is too much to give when he has given everything? Do you see how the Spirit works?
He draws you to see the beautiful thing of what Jesus has done. Becoming a Christian is not a private thing. It means you need to so identify him that you will lose, you'll be willing to lose friends, reputation, honour, a job, career, for the sake of keeping friendship with your Lord. Let me finish with the words of um, a man called Don Carson. Well, I'll finish with Jesus' words in a moment, but Don Carson, he's a, Don Carson's a theologian, a Christian leader in America who's written many, many books. He's a, uh, a fine Christian man. He, he talks about the implications of all of this kind of thing for his children many years ago when his kids were younger. Listen to what he says. Sometimes we're concerned to protect our children from the scorn of peers who have little time for Jesus. After all, we say the Bible says much about earning a good reputation with outsiders. But that reputation is for integrity, kindness, love. It's never to be won at the expense of silence. I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost. A cost that is eminently worth it, but still a cost. You know what I wish for us as a church? What I wish for each of us, what I pray for us, is that we'd be like Jesus, so distinct from the world that it notices us, so clear in our proclamation that we get not only conversion but hostility. And I wish for us enough opposition to make us strong, enough insults to make us choose, choose the favour of Jesus over the favour of friends, and enough hard decisions to make us see that following Jesus costs. It is eminently worth it, but it costs. That's what we ought to pray for one another. Now, friends, I'm going to invite the musicians up, but I'm going to give you time just to sit quietly for a minute or so to reflect, to think on all you've heard from the Lord today in his word, but to think particularly, are you willing to stand for him in the context of hostility? Are you valuing his friendship more than the world's? Are there areas of life that you need to change to bring them more in line with how Jesus would have you live? And in the midst of that, you might be praying that he gives you the strength. So just take some time.